welcome to Step Up Nigeria's podcast. Our podcast is an initiative built to create awareness of governance issues that highlight the cost of corruption and its impact on service delivery. Our podcast also hopes to build a society with people of integrity and provide solutions to service delivery challenges faced by everyday Nigerians. On this special podcast episode, we would be bringing you um, an interesting discussion continuing our COVID-19 and corruption series. And in this podcast, we'll be discussing how is data-driven journalism helping to expose corruption during COVID-19. And to discuss this with us today, we have our executive director, Oninye O. Um, and a special guest from Data Fight who would like to introduce himself, please. Uh, My name is Joshua Olufemi. I'm the founder of Data Fight uh, and the team lead for uh, data access and other programs. Thank you very much for that, Joshua. Um, so would like to go straight into the conversation. Um, so what, why do you think Data Fight was necessary? Why, what was the need to establish um, an organization like Data Fight? First, the access to data in Nigeria in the larger, you know, uh, freedom of information uh, space was uh, was challenged uh, as a whole for civil society, for media, and even, you know, uh, well-meaning policymakers who wanted to use data to plan or to assess or to project for the future. And that was first the need, you know, what prompted, uh, you know, establishing data fight to, you know, respond to that lack of data or access to data. The other is, even when the data is available, you know, there are a lot of civil society that were providing data. You had the Premium Times, uh, you know, Center for Investigative Journalism, which is Udeme platform, Budget Ad Tracker, you know, Follow the Money by Connected Development. And then you wonder, what kind of intelligence, insights are citizens getting from this data? Nothing more than just, oh, this, do you know, do you know, do you know? And we thought, you know, why don't we take this data, you know, weaponize it for good, I mean, and then put it in the hands of citizens and also policymakers. So that when you say things like, oh, uh, we've spent 10 trillion naira, for instance, on subsidy, and citizens feel like, oh, you've done so well. And then the question is, was that the best way you could have used that money? Couldn't you have used it to build schools? You know, couldn't you have used it to build, uh, to construct hospitals? Wouldn't you have used it to give a job, you know, rather than putting it in the hands of people who have cars and can always buy the fuel at the lesser rate? So you're more or less talking about redistribution of, uh, you know, of uh, government resources or, 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 or national resource, wealth or resources. So those kind of need to provide more insight and intelligence was another reason for data flight. And also across, you know, development especially, you see that even the, uh, the right kind of data isn't available there. And the ones that you have are outdated. I'll give you an, another example. The latest National uh, Nigeria Demography and Health Survey is 2018 data. Every other five years is when you have this data produced by the National Bureau of Statistics. That means you have five years to make decisions for issues such as access to health, gender, and all of those kind of things. And we thought we could also, you know, within that uh, uh, value chain, you know, provide access to you know data collection that can be used you know, on the go, either at uh, midpoint, endpoint, or even the baseline point of decision-making by all, 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 all stakeholders. 
Thank you very much for that um, introduction as well. And then um, explaining to us why data is so important in, in this fight that we are <laughs> honestly going into. Um, so a lot of your work, um, like you've explained, using data to highlight various governance issues, um, talking about putting this data in the hands of media, policymakers, citizens and the likes. So um, after this data has been given to those who disseminate it further, how can open data help to ensure good governance? I'd like you to see data like, you know, a tool to, to balance governance as it is. Uh, so it helps to reconfigure, you know, the relationship between citizens and the state. You know, the demand and supply of information, the demand and supply of accountability is what, you know, open data helps to provide. So it moves, you know, government from just being information gatekeepers or publishers, uh, you know, and, you know, uh, aligns that with citizens' ability to interpret and use that data. You know, and then you from that you are able to have good governance, you know, equitable and more uh, or what you can say, just society. Uh, and how does it do that? First, it helps citizens to better understand government policies because that's, you know, uh, embedded in data. It also helps citizens to be able to hold government to account. It helps other social accountability agents like the media and civil society, you know, to be able to use that same data to combat misinformation and disinformation and also helps to enhance objectivity, especially for journalists. Uh, you know, in, in that regard. So it, it's a it's a transparency tool. It's a, a you know a inclusive participation tool. Is a you know it's government efficiency tool, as it were. You know, and it's a it's a good policy and development planning uh, you know uh, uh, instrument uh, uh, large. Thank you very much for that. Um, Oya, as well. What are your thoughts on um the importance of data and how do you think data can help um improve governance as well as the importance of um, data-driven journalism in tackling corruption? Yeah, thank you, Farami. Um, I think like I liked the phrase Joshua used earlier when he said um it's um he sees open data as something that balances governance. Um, open data, like he's mentioned, I mean, it's quite a powerful tool, particularly when you take that data that is available, like what DataFight is doing, and, you know, to actually now make it um, accessible, you know, to citizens and also to, also to tell stories, you know, around that data. And I'll come to that. One of the key things open data does, which um, probably we're going to come in, discuss later in this podcast, is around... Um, exposing corruption. I can give so many examples of how open data, um, you know, has enabled civil society, even to some extent the media, NGOs, you know, to expose um, to expose corruption. Like for example, PPDC. I'll give an example. They've been using procurement data to highlight various issues. I know they've used procurement data to highlight issues around primary healthcare facilities not being well equipped. Um, take the NEITI um, audit reports, you know, which we we, we we receive. I mean, it's there. So what is useful, having that data open, it now makes it easy for people like Joshua, you know, in data fights, you know, and the rest of um, another data analyst to now take that data and make it meaningful for citizens. Um, so open data is very useful in exposing corruption. It's very useful in highlighting red, red flags you know, weak service delivery points. Um, you know, it's it's really, you know, it's 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 so powerful that I can't, you know, it's really a powerful tool, but it's only more powerful when it's broken down. So the data in itself in Nigeria, you know, I've been I was reflecting the other day, we think actually Nigerian government is quite open to to some extent in the sense that we actually have so many 
open platforms at the moment. And I just realized that I think the problem is not just that they're not there. I went to the open treasury portal and I was just, I was just, I was just, you know, clicking and just looking at numbers. And I think I just closed the portal. I didn't even know where to start from. And if you're the kind of person that is like, you know, a little bit nervous about, you know, numbers, graphs, oh my God, you know, you're already like put off. So this is where the work that Data Fight, I think, you know, does, which is what drew me to Data Fight as well. I think I'm, it's, 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 it's quite nice to have that kind of um, support, you know, around making data meaningful. It's very important. Um, so I think these are just some of the examples, exposing corruption, identifying weak service delivery points, um, bridging the gap as between government and citizens, using that is, is, is a good tool. It's for constructive engagement. You know, and that's what open data does. When that data is there, we can begin to ask questions. You ask questions based on evidence. You know, there's a platform, there's something we are beginning to have a bargaining, you know, um, power over. But when we don't have that data, where do you even start? Do you get what I mean? So this is what open data does. Open data really, really is quite a constructive tool um, that can really help in strengthening governance. Thank you very much, Moe. Um, and you had started to talk about it already. And Josh, I would like if you can even give more specific examples on how um, data-driven journalism has helped in the fight against corruption and how you think it can help and will continue to help going forward. All right. So I said I'll start with my past life, uh, which is when I was still uh, with the Premium Times Center for Investigative Journalism. And if you, if you remember the kind of reporting that we did with Panama Papers and Paradise Papers, uh, you can begin to see the power of data journalism, you know, in, 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 and the kind of impact it can create. Because all we had was just a, 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 a data dump from a whistleblower. And this data dump, you know, when we use the tools of data journalism and investigative journalism, you know, you had, you know, presidents, prime ministers, you know, in different places resigning, you know, because accountability stared them in the face and, you know, kind of whipped them, uh, 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 swept them off of, of, of their feet. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, and another thing that uh, data journalism is able to do is it, it, it kind of restrain, you know, a journalist from, you know, deviating from objectivity. Because, uh, you know, we all have our biases. We all have different ways that they can find their way into our, our, our practice and, and, and profession. But data helps you to stay on course. Because one, it's, it, the, the, the information is right there. You're just analyzing and interpreting it. Of course, you can mis misinterpret, but that gives you one guide to, to what you're doing. Another thing that, uh, you know, data journalism does is it gives you evidence. Uh, it's evidence-based reporting. You're not, it's not hearsay, it's not, oh, uh, no source can come back and say, oh, I'm denying what I said before, oh, 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 I didn't mean what I said before. Data is a source, and data you can always go back to, you know, and, and that level of credibility. But more importantly is that it's a tool for anti-corruption. And I want you to see data journalism, you know, the product of data journalism in the hand of an anti-corruption agency such as ICPC, EFCC, you know, school or, or, you know, and, and, and the other ones, you know, because after you, whatever you have done with data journalism becomes evidence that they themselves can use to prosecute or to sanction anyone, you know, that level of, you know, uh, that power that, that it has. And above board, you know, it, it advances development, you know, democratic governance, 
you know, it becomes a tool to engage citizens, it empowers citizens to be able to demand accountability, you know, and, and, and you know, there's this other role that is able to play, even though it's still aspirational in Nigeria. And that role is that it's an, it's, it has the capacity for early warning and is able to predict or forecast the future. And we experimented it in, you know, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. When it got to Nigeria, people were, you know, were, were, they wanted information about how much it will spread, what's the rate of the, the, the rate of spread, where will it get to? And what did we do? We just deployed a predictive tool and we said, okay, by May ending, the, the, the number will have gone beyond 10,000 or to have reached 10,000. And here we were in May, and that prediction was true. So it means that if you had a government that was that was you know that was uh, serious, that kind of predictive tool that journalism had deployed was something for them to react to. So okay, if these guys are saying we should be looking out for you know ten thousand, that means we should be preparing for ten thousand. And there were many other things that you could use data journalism to do, like you could you could look at you know uh, 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 you know demographic spread. You could look at you know different things and then deploy that. To, to begin to give early warning and to begin to signal what is possible and what's not possible, and, 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 and so much more that you can you can you can do with their journalism and governance. Yes, thank you very much, Joshua. Um, so I was saying uh, over to you, Oni. Um, any more specific examples that you can give on how data-driven journalism um, can help to tackle uh, the corruption in Nigeria? Um, thank you. Uh, um, Joshua mentioned referring to Premium Times as you know um, a perfect example. They've done lots of investigative stories, which has you know involved the use of data. But I think more specific, more general, um, generally, I would just want to just kind of emphasize what um, Joshua had said. You know what I like about data-driven journalism, why this is very important around particularly fighting corruption, is just that that approach of using storytelling, right? to tell, um, you know, using data to tell stories, you know, um, which is backed with evidence. So it's one thing to tell stories around an issue, but actually, you know, having, um, using data to tell that story. So meaning that that story is actually backed with evidence, make it more powerful. Um, so it can be very useful around even like money laundering issues. It's very useful um, around procurement issues. You know, this data-driven journalism, like, you know, for, for example, what we're going to discuss later today around emergency procurement, um, we can see how data-driven journalism, um, even you know, from what DataFight does, you know, has enabled or highlighted very, very a very, very important red flag around COVID-19 um, procurement. So this is just showing the potential. I'm using that because that's a very recent example, and it's just showing the potential that you know data-driven journalism, you know, can can have, um, or 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 has on exposing corruption or exposing red flags, um, that indicate some kind of um, foul play. Um, so I think data-driven journalism definitely um, is something to watch out for and I think should be done more and by so many media organizations. And I think data fight, even though they're not a media organization, but they're using they, what their approaches, you could call data-driven journalism, because what they're doing is telling news stories from the data around various issues. Um, and I'm hoping that they would also support other media organizations, you know, to, to produce more of this kind of stories, you know, um, using, you know, using data to tell stories. I think it's a beautiful thing and to really expose a lot because you're doing that with evidence, backed with evidence. 
Um, thank you very much, Oni, and thank you very much, Joshua. So um, we move to the main gist of our discussion today. Um, so Data Fight has recently published a report highlighting some red flags um, with the emergency procurement of goods and services during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so can you please tell us a bit more about your findings from that report and some of its implications? Uh, uh, right. So one of the things that we, we, we found out uh, from, you know, the investigation uh, was that not all the MDAs that are supposed to be reporting at the moment are reporting. So I think at the moment you have just about 45, you know, uh, agencies that are reporting. So you have the Federal Ministry of Health, but just one agency under that ministry is reporting, which is the National Primary Health Care Development Agency. You have the uh, you know, Federal Ministry of Environment, you have the uh, NCDC, um, uh, 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 yes, the National Center for Disease Control, and then you have the NSCDC, which is um, uh, um, another uh, law enforcement agency under the Ministry of, of Interior. Now, you look at all the people that are affected by these issues, and then you ask the questions, where are the other ones? For instance, Ministry of Aviation, uh, uh, you know, uh, transportation, I mean, under the aviation sector. You know, you, you, there's no, they are nowhere to be found. You know, other agencies that are that, that are also involved, such as uh, you know the FRSC, uh, the you know the police, and other ones that have become you know uh, uh, frontline uh, you know agents in, in these issues. You don't have information about them, so that's the first thing. But for the for the for the five uh, you know MDAs that have actually uh, published their data. We noticed a lot of a lot of uh, uh, discrepancies, or, or well, I would say, violation or red flag in terms of what you have in the in the procurement emergency procurement procedure of the BPP. So, because COVID-19 is a it's a, it's an emergency issue and a health emergency issue, uh, the the regular uh, bureau procurement uh, act has been relaxed to ensure that people can move around things easily. And one of the things that it ensured is that you don't need to have uh, uh, pretty much the bidding process, probably don't need a, a, a budget planning document. All you need to do is approach contractors and ensure that these contractors are compliant with the federal uh, contractors' uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, requirements, such as you have your, your CSD registered, your FRS, uh, uh, payment uh, certificate is, is up to date, your NSITF and other things like that are, are in place. So we realized that for almost all the five MDAs, they had contractors who, you know, have, have not met this, this requirement. Another thing is also the cost inflation in, in what they are doing. Uh, you know, some of even the projects are untraced. You can't trace them and they are on by five. I'll give you an instance. Uh, there was a one million era ID card pass, a location uh, purchase of ID card pass, and you know, and for production of 500 units of ID cards. So you, you're wondering, is it is an ID card about 20,000 naira, or how much is it to, you know, to 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 or 2,000 naira to buy an ID card? So you have issues like that. You have also uh, things that like procurement of liquid soap for 40 million naira, and customized fabric face masks, you know, for 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 a, a, that amount of money. So you, there are basic uh, challenges like that. And some of these uh, contractors, I, I think we, there was a point where we realized that one of them is, has actually been uh, uh, marked as a defaulting contractor, which means it's already on the defaulters list. 
and that means you shouldn't be doing business with such an organization. There are, there are also instances even when they are published data that the, the, the breakdown of the purchases and proper descriptions were missing. And these are already red flags and you know, having you for corruption, as it were. We reached out to one of the contractors and I think they were saying, uh, 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 no, one of the agencies and they said, uh, we would have to do everything in a hurry and we just went with anyone who had it in their store. And that means no uh, uh, main measure was put in place and, 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 and so much more that we think. But overall, I think that the emergency uh, you know, uh, uh, state is giving room for these NDAs to violate the act. And at some point, accountability you know, needs to come to, 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 fall, to, to fall, or you need to hold them to account in one way or the other and sanction them so that others can learn. But more importantly, there are bigger transactions that are being done by other NDAs that we don't even have them published at the moment. And that's another level of advocacy that you need civil society and the media to begin to point out. Thank you so much for that. Um, that was quite enlightening. And it's it's sad to say that there are so many um, discrepancies that are existing. It would be interesting to see what all the findings we bring post-COVID when we're looking back at how much was spent. Um, and that would be good to see as well. So um, only um, any thoughts and also based on what Joshua just explained about, you know, emergency procurement and things like that, what recommendations would you suggest based on some of these red flags that have been identified? Um, thank you, Farami. Um, so when I saw um, DataFi's report um, earlier today, actually it was like, wow, this is what we've been discussing since the COVID-19 pandemic, the emergency procurement risk, you know, what are the corruption risks during COVID-19? And then just seeing almost like it kind of validated what we've been scared of um, and which is why you know I said no Joshua we need to talk about this I think this is you know um, quite a very relevant and timely report so first of all is, is this a surprise no it's not a surprise um, I always I'm on the point I'm, I'm on the I'm of the view that when we say I mean when we've been discussing COVID-19 and corruption risk and I always argue that Yes, there are going to be some emerging corruption risks during pandemics. So pandemics, because of the emergency procurement thing and the, you know, the, the pressure to get things quickly in order to save lives. However, in the case of Nigeria, I would say this is this is something. It's just more like, will I call it? I won't call it. Would I call it a worse situation or just makes it easier for them? This is what we see every time. The procurement rules. If you look at the audit reports, have they flout procurement rules like? Like anything you can think of, I mean, I, I don't know how many MDAs really follow, you know, appropriate procurement rules. We see this thing. So, what this is, what the the risk with COVID nineteen, you know, the emergency response um, management of funds during this period is just that, like Joshua said, it just makes it worse because then they they have more loopholes as well to, you know, probably give an excuse on why X Y Z happened. So it's not a surprise. It's just like building up on what we're already experiencing you know, around MDAs, you know, violating procurement rules, you know, contracts being awarded to friends and family. These are just the issues that Nigeria keeps on talking. This is this is the social norm. This is these are the no, normal practices that we see. This is, you know, from January to December every year for my MDAs, what is happening just that pan the pandemic is just, you know, well, I call it made it slightly worse. I wouldn't even say it's because things even happen. It just it's just like it's made it slightly worse, but the good thing is that civil society has been quite prepared. 
you know, this time around. And I think with the social media and somehow the, we like to call it as the positive thing of the lockdown, people, you know, everybody being on the internet, there's been so much questions from beginning of March or even early February when it came into Nigeria. Oh, these funds, these funds, you know, how are we going to manage? Tell us who's donating money. So there's lots of questions. And I was even surprised that we actually, um, data fights, you know, brought it to my attention from that report that there, there's actually a list of donors on the open treasury portal. So the information is actually out there. So, so yeah, so it's not a surprising development, but it's interesting that, you know, what I like is that the, the data is, you know, enabling us to actually begin this, at least have evidence to actually now begin to ask questions. Like Joshua said, first of all, why the other MDAs that haven't so, um, submitted, you know, anything. And this is, like I said, this is also typical because for the audit reports, we know many MDAs do not even submit audit reports. So this is just all just showing you like the rot already in the system that is just, you know, manifesting or is more is, is of a greater concern because for the to manage the COVID-19 response, we need to really have corruption. I mean, see hand sanitizers, how much does it really cost? Or um what's the other one um Joshua um talked about that was um, you know, I can't remember where it was again, but just those little things and costing so much, you know, amount of money when there's so many um, poor communities with no access to any healthcare facilities. Um, what I'll be interested to find out as well, I don't know if Data Fight has um, looked into this, even the contracts for the isolation centers. Well, how was, you know, what, 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 what was the process? Because we don't even know, we just know people were building isolation centers or contracts have been given for people to build quarantine. I said, what's, what's the story behind that? Who, who are the contractors? When was it, you know, because those are big, huge projects, you know? Um, and those are the questions that I think civil society should keep on asking. And, and it, I will be interested to see the, the process for the contract for those for those things. But um, yeah, so it's not it's not a surprise at all. In terms of recommendations, same I will say the recommendations we'll be making around um, procurement reforms generally. You know, around the need. First of all, I don't know. The, um, Joshua can correct me. I'm not too sure if there are clear guidelines around emergency procurement in Nigeria. I'm not sure. Do we have clear guidelines that are transparent, you know, on what to do to ensure transparency and accountability. So if that's, we already have that, then that's good. That's the first step. Then secondly, we need to have a proper audit by the Office of the Auditor General, a performance audit on the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, you know. Um, and, and I think in doing that audit, it would be good for the Office of the Auditor General to consider partnering with society. So we have a kind of like a citizen participatory audit um, so that because um, so we have a holistic um, approach to this audit because society are already doing some form of audit and they are seeing things so whatever they are feeding into if there's a way they can take that data and evidence as well and impute into what they are doing I think that will be recommended and really do a full-fledged report and not something that comes out 10 years after for them to be useless we want you know performance audits that would come in you know at least, you know, soon enough that will be reasonable for people to ask questions and, you know, take whatever measures that needs to be taken. Um, and I think that also if red flags are being, I don't know the role, I don't know how anti-corruption agencies as well um, coming, you know, would work in, you know, in this kind of setting. But like in an ideal world with, um, in, with some of the issues that Data Fight has highlighted or alleged, I mean, it needs to be investigated, I think. Proper investigation should be conducted around some of this process. We need to bring in the anti-corruption agencies here as well. 
you know, let them just conduct, you know, we're not, nobody's accusing anybody of anything, you know, that you're innocent, proven guilty, but some red flags have been identified, analyzing the open um, portal that we have and other sources of evidence that data fighters use to see that, oh, there's, there's an issue, you know, there's some contracts that seem inflated, you know, we don't, I, I think I want us to move beyond just the talk and let's move more to the work. So when we, this data fighters highlighted this, we need, how can we move from this posing this red flag to actually someone, you know, another body or another now taking that um, responsibility of investigating and verifying and ensuring that, okay, what happened here? Okay, could it have been a mistake? Could it have been, do you get what I mean? And then I think that would be a useful next step. So in summary, I'll say one, an audit, performance audits on the response of um, the COVID-19, um, on, the, on, the, on the funds, sorry, on the funds that have been allocated for COVID-19 response. And then, and that audit should be, they should consider doing that in collaboration with civil society working, you know, in the audit space. And then secondly, I would say that the anti-corruption agencies, you know, if there's a way data fight and the rest of them who have exposed, they should also pass this information to the anti-corruption agencies, assuming they haven't seen it, you know, and, in, in, you know, and see if they can take up, um, you know, investigate this further um, as well. So that's, that's my recommendation. Thank you very much, Oni. Um, so Joshua, um, for final comments, um, based on everything, based on the findings of the reports and all that you've seen and the comments you've made as well, what are some of your recommendations for government, citizen, civil society? Um, what recommendations do you have for improvements that would um, ensure that some of the errors that you've identified don't continue to occur? Okay. I'll start with the most important office in the nation, and that's the office of the citizens. I think citizens need to take advantage of these open uh, government data portals, such as the you know, open data, such as the open treasury portal, and you know, in any simple way possible, begin to demand accountability. You know, just while we're talking, I'll give you an example. Uh, I just saw on, on SCDC, uh, you know, list of things that they purchased, that they spent 24 million constructing gatehouse and perimeter fence for the treatment and isolation center in Guinea Abuja. I don't know what perimeter fence you're building with 24 million naira. And that's the kind of question that any other you know, citizen can ask and say, seriously, is it a whole building you are building or just, you know, and this conversation can start from there. You know, the same thing with journalists, they need to always take advantage of this, especially because, you know, the evidence is right in front of them. They, they, you don't need any special whistleblower. You don't need anybody dropping anything at your door or in your in your in your, uh, in your email. The, everything is already here for you to take advantage of, you know. And the same thing with civil society. I think it's high time the civil society partner more, like uh, only said, with you know with anti-corruption against and even with the media. Some media organizations don't have the capacity to, you know even download this document and take it into another platform. You can just look at it here and then. So there's need for training capacity. And I think that development community also, I know that there's been a, little, a lot of work that they've done because we, we had a webinar with the development partners recently, and they said that they reached out to all their uh, grantees to say, you can take some of your grants to do your COVID-19 work. I think they should also start to point people in the direction of all this open data portal and say, what level of uh, auditing what level of accountability are you guys into? And at large also, government has gone a long way to provide this platform. 
I don't think that that should become an excuse not to do every other anti-corruption and accountability work that it is meant to do. I mean, and we should also begin to, they should also not use this as a reason, you know, not to, uh, you know, respond to freedom of information requests that people are giving them. Because this is not exhaustive. I, I mean, there are other agencies, like I mentioned, that have not put the published yet. You know, and when they are reached out to, they should, be, you know, uh, open enough, you know, to, to provide that information. I mean, there's no need, there's no need to fight. If the government says that corruption is one of its, uh, you know, uh, 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 anchor, uh, anchor uh, programs for this administration, I think that they should go all, all the length with that, uh, as it were. Thank you very much, Joshua. Uh, thank you for all the insights and for breaking down um, parts of this report for us. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, before we end the podcast quickly, um, can you please point our listeners into the direction of how can they follow um, Data Fight, your activities on social media? Do you have a website or is there a portal you want to point our listeners to as well? Thank you so much. So uh, just as the name is, if you just type datafight.com, you'll be able to see a, a number of our reports. Uh, our data journalism work, uh, D-A-T-A-P-H-Y-T-E. It's not the fight. People kind of think it's the punching. and So it's not F-Y-G-H-T. It is P-H-Y-T-E. So datafight.com. Uh, and we're on Twitter with the same, uh, you know, uh, Ando. At Datafight on Facebook, the same thing. LinkedIn, you can use that to find us. I think the only one that has a, a, a suffix is our Instagram, which is datafightng. And just a normal Google search, you, you can find us everywhere. And you can also reach us at, you know, uh, either admin at uh, datafight.com or partners at datafight.com for partnership and, uh, you know, any kind of support. And we, we, we are very much open to any media organization in Nigeria to help them establish a data journalism platform and to even resource them with data and technological tools that can, you know, uh, promote their work. So we, our doors are open and anyone can reach out to us on that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joshua. And thank you so much, Oni, for your time and your contributions as well. This has been a fun podcast. Uh, for our listeners, also remember to follow Step Up Nigeria on Instagram and Twitter at Step underscore up underscore Nigeria and on Facebook at Step Up Nigeria. If you're also yet to subscribe to our YouTube channel, if you enjoyed this video, please like and um, subscribe to our channel as well. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, Oni. Thank you so much, Brian.